Hey everyone, Philip here, your host and uh, fellow traveler. This episode originally aired uh, late last summer, um, but you'll hear us talk about an event uh, that is coming up now in less than a month, and that's the Planetary Society's uh, Day of Action. Planetary Society, founded by Carl Sagan. I'm a member, I'll be participating. Uh, it's a super fun thing, and our guest in this show is the awesome Casey Dreyer, who uh, runs uh, the um, Day of Action that you'll hear us talk about, in which uh, if you are a U.S. citizen, you get to talk directly to our fearless leaders and maybe give them a little, a little bit more courage even to continue supporting uh, NASA and space and science education, space exploration and science education, both causes of which I... Uh, participate in as a consumer and a little bit as a producer. Um, so I hope you enjoy this show. Remember also, we are on Patreon now, patreon.com slash what the if. It's a membership uh, program where you sign up and uh, new members get all kinds of cool gifts, t-shirts, mugs, also known as goblets of fire, uh, stickers, which will allow you to travel between uh, parallel universes and not forget where you came from. Always fun. Good stuff. Uh, Patreon.com slash what the if. Please check it out. If you don't know what it is, <laughs> definitely check it out. If you're familiar with Patreon, I encourage you to go and um, see what, uh, what what you find interesting there. And let us know. Give us ideas for the show and uh, for gifts. All that kind of stuff would be fantastic. Uh, really appreciate all the support that all of you have given us over the more than four years we've been doing this program. Uh, many of you write in um, from all over the world, and that's great. We can email us at feedback at whattheif.com, and uh, you can visit our website, whattheif.com, as well. But Patreon is the new thing. It's the new kid on the block. See what you think, and enjoy the show. Welcome to What The If... The place where anything can happen. The road to if is paved with good intentions. We have an unusual uh, crew today. We are we are absent our uh, fearless historian. Uh, Matt Stanley is on assignment. Uh, I don't know what that assignment is, but... We'll find out if he survives it. Uh, but um, so without our historian, I suppose everything that happens today is unrecorded and is absent from history. But if any viruses are involved, Gabby Panicia is here. How are you, Gabby? I am good. The sun is shining. The weather's warm. It's making it a little bit sweatier in the lab, but overall, it's still good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh Gabby, just give us a quick description of what this show is for those who are new, and then I'm going to bring in our, I'm very excited about our guest this week. Yeah, so. What is, what is this? What have we stumbled into? Well, we have stumbled on an infinite universe of questions that are unasked and unanswered. Uh, and so each week we come up with an if, a thought experiment for how we can tweak the universe maybe, or, you know, follow one idea to its furthest possible logical conclusion which 
most of the time leads us to breaking the universe in some fundamental and irreparable way, at least for the hour that the show exists. Uh, so your reality is usually safe, but, you know, don't listen to too many of these in a row, maybe. Start breaking too many things. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm going to read, I, I don't know if I've read this. I've, we have one, uh, one item here in the mailbag that I honestly can't remember whether I read before or not, but it's so good, I'm going to read it again. And then we're going to bring in our esteemed visitor. Uh, from the mailbag, Cesar writes, uh, he sent this in, as you can as well, uh, via our website, whattheif.com. You can go there and send us a message. Cesar says, I have been listening to the podcast as I work, and it's very refreshing as a science geek. Right on, Cesar. Uh, or Caesar. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I, I, can't, I cannot get enough of each episode. Uh, my favorite one so far, this is a shout out to you, Gabby, is Godzilla versus Kong. Woo! <laughs> my brother and I watched it, but now I look at it from another perspective after that episode. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, go go check that out. Whattheif.com. You can find all our episodes. Um, and Cesar ends by saying, I will continue to catch up on the podcast. So thank you very much. And here we go. We have a new episode just rolling in right now. Uh, a returning guest, one of my favorite uh, ever that we've had, um, and just one of my favorite people. I think he, he, he does such good in the world. Um, Casey Dreyer is here from the Planetary Society. How are you, Casey? Uh, great, and thank, that's uh, my so far best introduction. My, my co-host on the Space Policy Edition never says such nice <laughs> things, Philip, so I'm, I should come back here more often. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. That is uh, you appear um, once a month on um, uh, Planetary Radio, which uh, is, and a shout out to, you, to the host, Matt Kaplan, there. I have listened to that show since it began, and uh, it's an amazing thing. So yeah, once a month, Casey, and so what does Casey talk about on that show once a month? Well, we're, now we're going to dive in. Casey has an unusual, so he's with the Planetary Society, a group founded by Carl Sagan and uh, a few others. Um, Casey, you can just give us a quick description of what that is for people who don't know. Um, you, I recommend checking them out, by the way. We'll talk more about that at the end, how you can find out more about the Planetary Society. But Casey, your job is something I think people don't generally think of as a part of being, let's say, an enthusiast about space exploration, planetary exploration. What does the Planetary Society? Well, planetary what do society, you do? What yeah. do I do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll start with that. Um, yeah. Well, I do space politics and space policy, um, getting people engaged in the process of advocacy for space exploration, for space science, and also trying to demystify the process of space politics and space policy to help people understand and themselves, again, just better participate in the democratic system that really drives and enables the type of space exploration that we want to see and like to see. So that's the, the fundamental aspect of that. And I think to your point, you know, anytime you have more than, you know, two people in the room, you're going to have politics, right? And so <laughs> it's not some, it, it's kind of built into the system that we kind of get to participate in that. And there's, generally, we talk about the United States in terms of how this process works, but there's many points of input that regular citizens can have and are expected to have in the process 
And it's very invigorating to participate in that. And it's an exciting area to, to work in. And kind of one of the diminishingly few areas where there is not hardcore partisan lock-in, right? Yes. You can actually yes. get good ideas still through, which is quite refreshing. And so that's that's the core aspect of what I work on at the Planetary Society and something that I've committed almost 10 years of my life to now. Yeah, yeah. So Casey's official title is, uh, you have two, actually. That's how that's how powerful you are. Uh, <laughs> Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate of yep. the Planetary Society. And, uh, or as I put it, uh, by the way, the host of, the host, <laughs> he's kind of the host with the, the CEO, right, uh, of the Planetary Society is Bill Nye, yep. Bill Nye the science well, guy. And, um, you know, Casey, Casey's <laughs> job is to keep Bill, keep Bill going. Bill's furnace. Bill needs burning. no help of mine to keep going. He <laughs> he has the most energy of any individual I've ever met in person. He's he's exactly what you see on his show is who he is in reality. It's, oh, that's it's really, pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, um, our idea today. Very unusual, what the if, and I like this. We're we're branching out. Um, I met you. You one of your uh, activities that you do, um, and I think one of the most uh, just sort of enlightening and empowering things that the Planetary Society does is uh, called the Day of Action. And every year, um, usually in person, um, but you, we. You did an unbelievable virtual version this year, which was incredible <laughs> Thank you. to me. Yeah, um, you, you people, members of the society, you can you know, all volunteer, come from all over the country, and we go to the American Congress and uh, meet with our representatives, uh, um, Casey and um, his colleague uh, uh, Brendan. Brendan. Brendan uh, organize all these meetings. For you, so you, it's all scheduled and everything like that, and you go and you, and uh, beforehand, um, Casey gives you, you know, um, there's a day of training, and you learn a lot about how it is that things go through Congress. Um, the huge revelation was that, uh, or, you know, one aspect of it that I, I found so powerful was, I guess, you know, I grew up kind of in the Apollo. I mean, I was two years old, or a year and a half when when we landed on the moon the first time. But anyway, I remember Apollo and. And I just kind of felt that NASA is something that just comes to us. You know, mm. it's given to us. It's just, well, the government does it. For instance, you know, um, like there's the military. There are certain things that the government does. They build highways. They do. Now, the truth is that behind all of those things, highways, et cetera, actually, if those things are impacting your life, you do learn to go to Congress and learn that there's power, you know, there's citizen power behind everything the government does. But in particular with NASA, it just seems so remote, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so even if inherently as you grow up, you learn, well, yeah, you can play a role. Call your congressperson, for instance. That's something we hear all the time. Call your con I just think, mm, you know, it just doesn't connect with me. I don't know what that is. It just seems to happen. What a totally different experience when you actually go there. First of all, meet other citizens, other society members, people who are into it, is it in, into Space exploration as much as you are, but also to be able to go and play a role in getting something done. And I think this is what's totally amazing. Um, 
And so there were uh, uh, just just announced um, within the past couple of weeks, uh, two missions to Venus, which is spectacular. I think it's the first time NASA is going back in 30 years. or something. Yep. Since 88 or 89 with uh, Magellan. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and those began in some part. Um, there, there are several uh, beginnings to the process that led to that very long, I'm sure, years and years process that led to the happening. Um, but eventually, you know, all things go well. In a couple of years, the rockets will go up. The craft will land. Uh, uh, one will fly in the atmosphere and another will uh, land on the surface of Venus. Began with perhaps a phone call to Congress by interested people, right? And so we are going to follow your, if you were to call, we're going to follow a call to Congress to and, and watch how that goes from your mouth to the surface of Venus. But <laughs> you, you could kiss the surface of Venus. What the if... You could play a role in getting the human race to another planet. So uh, it begins with, uh, and we, I'll just say real quick. So Something like this, it, it would have begun with a number of things. I imagine there's people, there are scientists that submit proposals, right? The government says, eh, and all that kind of stuff. But citizens are playing a role here throughout this process, right? Mm -hmm. So at what point might a call come in to a congressperson that began to help this mission, the Venus mission? Perhaps? Yeah, the Venus missions are kind of uh, an interesting special case. They are part of what's called the Discovery Mission Program in NASA and discovery missions are competed. Like they, they just basically open up a pot of money every few years and ask the scientists uh, in the country to say, give us your best ideas, you know, be creative. Here's, you have a cost limit, go do something cool. And then they compete and they eventually select down to go through this rigorous scientific process. And then NASA selects one or two or whatever uh, to say, these are the missions we're going to do. And then they start building them. And so this comes out of having the resources to pursue missions like that. And that's where the citizen aspect comes in. F Philip, something you said, I think, just bears some emphasis here, which is kind of the core idea, really, of why this is a valuable thing to do. But this idea that what the government does doesn't just happen for no reason. Right. I think that's worth dwelling on for a second that the reasons, you know, we are in a representative democracy. Right. And NASA, you know, as far reaching and kind of force, you know, as future oriented as the Constitution was, there's no thing in the Constitution that says the United States has to invest in space exploration. Right. That would be a very forward-looking document. That, that would have been that. amazing if Thomas Jefferson was in Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> very. And the you know, and you know, NASA itself didn't exist until 1958, right? So it's it mm. hasn't even been around a century. So 
NASA exists in response to, obviously, a political situation. There's a whole history of the Cold War, obviously, is part of that. But now that it's here, it's, it's considered discretionary. It is under the discretion of Congress. Every single year, they have to decide whether to spend money at all on it, right? And it's usually not that terrifying of a precipice that, that NASA is going from, you know, what it has now to zero. But the amount of money, there's nothing written into any sort of founding document that says we have to do this, right? And so it's the choice of Congress, it's the discretion. This is why at a basic level, these members of Congress who ultimately one of their priorities is to be reelected, who represent a dispersed geographic, you know, dispersal throughout the country, they have to care enough about what NASA does has to intersect with their priorities and ultimately the priorities of their constituents, right? It, to, to continue to make this argument of why it's worth spending taxpayer dollars. And that doesn't mean that everything NASA does, an individual person will agree with because NASA as a consequence, right? This is a large geographically dispersed coalition of politicians with a number of interests being represented in it that ultimately fund the space program. And, you know, that's in a sense just basically describing democracy, right? It's this, this messy, frequently um, frustrating, slow process that is built to have lots of points of, of input and forces coalition building at a certain level. And yeah. that's to me what's really fascinating. My, my background is in physics. Physics tells you, right, how the world works at a very basic level, right? And politics and policy is kind of the equivalent of that, right? That, you know, this is how groups of people work together, right? How do you go? I've always been fascinated by how do we go from the dream of a Venus mission in some scientist's head, right? This ephemeral, you know, firings of neurons and a little electrical pulses that goes through some process that somehow at the end of it is manifested in steel and plastic and silicon yeah. in an actual spacecraft that then goes to Venus to return the data. Like if you think about that transformation, right, of little electrical impulses to spacecraft, like that's a pretty amazing it's pretty intense. Process. Yeah. Uh, and that's a sense of what this space policy is, you know, and this is why I find it so fascinating to understand and then to realize, as you were saying, as you know, in this case, we're going to limit our discussion to the United States. Like if you're a citizen of the United States, you have a role in that transformation, right? Of electrical impulses to reality. <laughs> you right. Can, That's right. Your own little electrical impulses can, can <laughs> work in phase with others and, and make something try to happen. Harness <laughs> your neuro neurological powers. <laughs> yes. Don't waste That's them. Exactly. Telekinetically and launch that ship to space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, step two. But, it's, <laughs> but yes, it's 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 a very interesting process when you try to abstract it out. What's really happening here? And so, right. you know, for people, mm -hmm. we were talking a little bit before the show. If you know, for anyone listening, here's like, ah, this is going to be really boring about like how committees work. I assure you, it is not. It, it is a fascinating sociological study. Yeah. scientific study and just a study of motivations of what people decide to do. Yeah. And it's very ultimately empowering because there are roles for you. And again, the U.S. system, I'd say far more than the European system, which is, I mean, there are democracies, different types of democracies and the European Space Agency is a very different kind of setup. 
the U.S. system is almost uniquely set up for public input in very direct areas of public input in ways that many other even democratic systems are not. So there's a huge opportunity, like very good amounts of opportunity here to make a real difference. Uh, right. in how space works. I, I love this image of the, the electrical neurons coming out of the firing in, in, in someone's brain. So they, your electrical neurons, you space fan, um, fire in your brain. And you get inspired to, you, you actually decide, this is the year you've been hearing all along your whole life. Call your congressperson, call your congressperson. Yeah, finally, you do it. And your your electrical signals in your brain go into your uh, fingers and your mouth and you pick up your phone and you call and you uh, the, the electrical signals go through the whole cell network and they ring a phone in an office on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So, Gabby, um, do you have any idea what you would do if you called, suppose you wanted to support a mission to Venus or support NASA in general? Do you have any idea what you would do? Have you ever called a congressperson? I actually don't know if I have. I might have. I feel like I'm the person who sends emails rather than call. I'm Gen Z. Nobody picks up a phone. To call. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, well, in fact, so so if you were to call, what would do? You have any any clue? What would you do? What, what would you was it? Would you be nervous? Would you be interested what would you like to know how to do well you typically i probably would have mentally rehearsed about anywhere from six to eight times what i'm gonna say because it always feels like you you should probably have your stuff a little together if you're you know contacting someone important um so it makes me feel like i would need to know uh you know assumably i'm not just saying hey fun stuff going into space like i might have something more specific i'm thinking about so i should probably know you know if there's like a bill number, like a reference number for this thing, like what I'm talking about, like bill, whatever, like support it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like this is, you know, a great moment for Casey to tell me, what do I need to know if I'm telling (laughs) my congressperson to support space? I really love the fog. In fact, I I would say, it's so interesting the way you put that, because I would say, I think one of the things that the inertia in me that kept me from, let's say, making this call even when in the past, I mean, I have not called Congress a zillion times, but sometimes there'd be some issue, some usually some social issue, something happened, and it really is very clear. It's like, well, Congress is voting, something like that. I'm going to call it. I'm going to support that thing. It's hot. It's in the news, et cetera. But with something like NASA, I don't, you know, what, what do I do? Just say, hey, I like NASA. So uh, Casey, Casey, actually, by the way, you, uh, I'll put a link on, our, on the webpage for this episode. You have a, a many great little tutorials, little fun videos. Mm-hmm. One of them is you sit at a phone and show us how easy it is. So what yeah. what, what can Gabby do? What, what, is, what, should Gabby, what should Gabby do? Well, I think her instincts were absolutely correct. And in my tutorials and my online class, Space Advocacy 101, a, a free class you can take, it's do your homework is the first step before you call. And that always makes it, if you want to be effective, you know, do a little bit of homework. And I actually have worksheets you can fill out on your member of Congress that kind of walks you through some basics. They say, you know, you can say, do really simple things. Do a Google search of their name and the word NASA. Have they said anything publicly about the space program? Or in this case, Venus. You can do their name. And maybe they have. And if they have, good to acknowledge that because that shows the person you're speaking with at their office 
that you are following the issue, right? You're establishing your credibility. Other things you can do, do they serve on relevant committees? So Congress works in these groups of committees. Certain committees have focus and jurisdiction on various aspects of government. So if you are uh, interested in something in space, if your member of Congress serves on a space committee, you know that's like extra bonus influence that they're going to have over the topic. Uh, then you can also do other things, like I always encourage very practical things. Does NASA have any investments in your congressional district? Is there money coming from NASA creating jobs? That's, you know, it's it, some people might feel like that's crass, but that's a very powerful motivation for members of Congress. And uh, jobs could be three, right? I mean, like any amount <laughs> of jobs is a good amount of jobs that that NASA will provide. And there are ways and tools online to look that up. So doing some basic research, first to understand where your member has stood on the issue or if they have any particular focus on the issue, gives you a context for how to share about it. And then uh, you can practice. I think Gabby said going over in your head what you're going to say. That's great. Um, Saying it out loud to a friend even is a great way to practice. And this is something we do at the Day of Action is we have sessions where we practice saying the words just so you get used to saying. Not required, but it's kind of it lowers the pressure a little bit. And then fundamentally, uh, if there is a bill or if there's a very specific thing, that's the useful thing, right? Do you have a specific ask for the member of Congress? And I like to think the most effective kind of one-two situation, uh, thing in this situation is to write an email, then follow up with a phone call referencing your email. So you can get a little more Mm -hmm. detail in your message, follow up with a phone call, And there's actual research that is done, surveys of congressional staff saying what are the most effective ways to contact them. And it basically scales with the amount of perceived time you have to put into it, right? They kind of use that as a proxy for how serious you are. And that itself is then a proxy for how many other people probably care about this in their district. You're kind of a tip of the iceberg, right? So for every one person who shows up into a congressional office talking about NASA, they probably figure that there's maybe 10 people who don't have the time to show up or care about it, but don't have the know know how to do it. And so you're kind of, in a sense, inadvertently representing a larger group of people because you're just statistically kind of an outlier that you bother to show up to Congress. So these are all kind of ways to, to represent yourself. And again, phone calls tend to be a good middle ground between time and impact because of that these hurdles we're all talking about, your nervousness of talking to somebody, the time it takes to talk to somebody, just that, again, it works in your favor, ironically, if it takes more of your mental and emotional energy. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, you're, you're talking, you're, you're always talking to other people, right? I think that's a really important fundamental thing is like, it's kind of interesting in my head. You were talking about like your neurons fire in your head. You write down an email or you make a phone call. Suddenly you're doing an analog to digital conversion, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then at the other end of that line, you're going back to analog again, right? You're going into someone's mind and you can just do some basic thoughts about how people's brains work. And you can just divorce the politics a little bit about whether your member is a Democrat or Republican or independent and, you know, versus what you are. And just they're human beings and human beings brains, you know, have lots of shortcuts into how they measure importance. Actually, right? here, I, just, I want to paint a picture. So who another thing, another thing that I kind of had to get over a little hurdle 
calling someone was like, well, you know, I'm in New York and let's say I'm calling the Senate. Chuck Schumer's not going to answer the phone, probably. If he does, I'd really be like, ah. yeah. You'd be a big donor if he picks up the phone when <laughs> you call. <laughs> yeah. So um, who's who who am I talking to? What is the what we've now followed the signal to this next step. And so we are in the message, right? We're in like a mm -hmm. little craft that is like a little thing that's <laughs> following the message, right? And so we've now come out of the phone in, in the office. And so what are we looking at? Who's listening? Who are they? What, what are they doing with our message? So assuming you're calling there, every member of Congress has an office in Washington, D.C., right? That makes sense. They also have offices back home, but let's, for the most part, you're going to be talking to the D.C. office where they're working most of the time. Mm -hmm. Every member of Congress and every uh, in the House or Senate has uh, a budget that they can spend on staff and operations every year. Senate tends to have bigger budgets because there's fewer of them, right? And they have to represent an entire state. Uh, and they get to hire uh, staff, right, to, to support them. They'll have senior staff that they're, they're with kind of all the time that's doing strategy, doing uh, really high-level, you know, legislative uh, bill writing or research. And then they'll have kind of lower-level staff, and I mean that in terms of just kind of experience of hierarchy, uh, generally students right out of college, maybe ones even internships, unpaid often. Uh, <laughs> and those are the people answering the phones if you just call an office. Um, they'll also have other staff, usually legislative uh, assistants, reading through emails that they receive. They have a whole constituent management system for receiving and processing emails. And it's smart. So this is a good lesson too. That system groups text, similar text together. So they can kind of tell if there's like a pre-written petition drive coming in. <laughs> if the text is, Oof. you know, 90% similar, they'll all group it down into one entry saying this is all coming on a single topic, very likely a petition. So this is good. Why like a nice teacher, like, uh, yeah, it's like they don't care so much about plagiarism, but they're like, well, these people didn't put in. And, and what you're emphasizing is the effort. They're saying, well, these yeah. people didn't put in as much effort to write in, and even if they're sending email, well, they didn't write their own. That's exactly right. And so that also then gives you the benefit of if you write your own letter or email, it won't match someone else's and it'll have its own entry in their system, right? So going back to the brains of these people, right? They're dealing with a ton of messages on every conceivable political topic, right? And generally more of the hot button ones. This actually can work into the favor of things like NASA, which is a little more esoteric, right? Literally out there. And <laughs> the you can be a signal that pops out of that noise pretty easily. If you're not talking about these really major issues, if you're talking about something like NASA, it's going to stand out, right? You have right, a lower right. threshold for attention. And if you're writing, again, your own custom letters or making your phone calls, those all get entered individually into these systems, right? So suddenly you're just literally physically taking up more space in their computer screen on these topics. <laughs> so if you're just a person scanning and you're busy, you see this, you're just taking up more of their attention, right? right, right. Really basic things like this are why, again, it works to do customized letters, custom phone calls, and then the ultimate is to reach out and request an in-person meeting with your representative, which Ooh. you can absolutely do, right? So they Gabby could do, you. Gabby could call it and... Ask for a meeting. Yep. 
But Ooh. and and <laughs> does that work, or is that why we go as a group with the planetaries? Like you scheduled all those meetings for us. It's right? it's easier when yeah we do that to make it easier for people. Uh, we right. do a lot of the scheduling. We work with services that are very familiar. They have personal relationships. They have, every office has a scheduler who runs right. the congressperson's daily schedule, and. But it can work in person. You might have to wait a while. Yeah. Um, generally, it's harder, obviously. If you live in California and want to meet Diane Feinstein, not as likely. But yeah. meeting your member, your house representative, much more likely, right? Just because they represent mm -hmm. fewer people. Right. Personally, when, when my wife and I moved to this area of, of Washington State, we reached out to our member of Congress and we got a meeting with them in a local coffee shop within two weeks. Uh, and introduced ourselves, right? And just talked yeah. about space and just made this, you know, you're just occupying their attention. So again, at the end of the day, you're looking to grab attention. You are fighting for attention in a highly competitive environment, right? right? But again, you've got some advantages if you're talking about space. One, everyone loves space, right? For the most part. No one is actively against space. There's no organized opposition to it. Right. Uh, so it's a feel-good thing. It's not highly politicized. Um, and then by doing that, as I said, you, because a lot of people don't write about it, if you get like a group of friends and you get 10 calls or emails in like a day, that will peak above the noise. And very likely some staffer will see that and say, oh, we just got a burst of you know, requests about this Venus mission in this context. Maybe that's something that's important. We should look into this. And they will usually at the end of every week, there's some meeting with the member of Congress that's summarizing what are the communications we got this week? Yeah, yeah. What do my constituents care about? What are the concerns that they're bringing to me? And that's the one they'll say, well, we got this number of messages about these Venus missions. And depending on who that member of Congress is, right, this is where it comes down ultimately to some uh, personality is say, well, tell me more about this. Let's look into this. Or how does it intersect with the, you know, then they'll say, you know, does this make political sense for me? Or am I personally interested in this? But it'll start to capture their attention, right? Yeah. So you're, getting, you're, you're, you're going through these kind of these analog to digital to analog conversions, basically to try to get in some of their mind space, right? To get a little beachhead in their brain that this is an issue that right. their constituents <laughs> care about. Yeah. And this is why it doesn't work if you are contacting members of Congress that don't represent you. Right, because you have no leverage in that situation. You can't vote for or against them, and so at the very basic level, they just don't care that much. There may be some exceptions that they have ambitions for statewide office or president or something like that, but that's pretty, you know, that that's abstracted out rather far. So yeah. it really only works for the people who represent you, right? That's how the system is is designed. This is yeah, this is interesting because I, I love this beachhead in the brain. Yeah, so. It's possible here that, for instance, if you didn't make that call and this congressperson was on the fence mm -hmm. about this issue, because um, I feel, you know, it's not like, oh, uh, this person called, I'm taking this all the way <laughs> to the budget, whatever, We're, you know, but, but you are part, we all play a role. And in fact, you need to be part of it. In other words, if everybody was just quiet, there'd be no... No, nothing firing in the congressperson's brain right. about this topic because there's plenty of other people talking to them. And so the Venus mission might have been in the balance for a moment here. And then because Gabby 
sent a a called, and and a young staff person notes, you know, and put that onto a spreadsheet, and then that was added to all the other people who have called recently about this thing, and they went and then they said. And the congressperson might have said, well, yeah, well, it was probably it was, but this is one of them groups, right? And and that's put together a form letter. Actually, no, some of these are individual people. Well, they don't live in my area, right? You know, actually they do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you've really, the person is interested. You might also, I feel like one other bonus thing might be that this is the kind of thing that a congressperson, gener- as I found when we got to meet at least the staff up there, a lot of them really do love it, love mm-hmm. this idea. And you just kind of re- you reinvigorated them. Mm-hmm. Um, with just the excitement, right, 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 right. We do have, I've been really down on America or whatever, you know, it's like, and there are important things I have to do and difficult things I have to do, but this is something I'm going to be able to bring to the floor and I'm not going to. Yeah. It's a welcome, frequently it's a welcome change of topic yeah. <laughs> to talk about yeah. space and, and positive, yeah. like kind of exploration well, stuff. Yeah. So that's right. And I think where this really is useful in particular. So say, let's say, for example, that your member of Congress doesn't have any special you know, just statistically, they're not going to have any special um, placement on a committee that oversees NASA or something like that. So why would you bother doing this? Well, frequently mm-hmm. as you're... So the way that the budget passes in, in Congress is that it starts with the committee that writes... There's a very small committee called Commerce and Justice and Science Appropriations Subcommittee, CJS. Their job is to literally write the first draft of literally appropriating money, authorizing the treasury to move money to NASA. And they can say it goes here, it goes here, and it goes here at these amounts. They write that, they move, they pass it by their small committee, about 10, pe- uh, 10 people or so. Mm. It goes up to a fuller, a larger committee that which they're a part of. They can amend it, but it takes more people to do that, right? Suddenly you're in a committee of 40 people. And so you need to make sure, you know, and then they pass that without their committee, right? And that has to do a majority vote of those say 40 people. And then it goes to the full, let's say in this case, the House of Representatives, 435 people have to vote for it. You can amend it also on the floor, but to amend it there, you need the votes of 215 people, something like that, right? Or 20, whatever the 23, the, the, the bare majority. So as it moves through, it can change, but it takes more and more and more people to successfully vote to change it, right? Because you're getting more and pe- more fingers in the pie. So in a situation where this frequently happens all the time, a lot of people try to make little changes or say, eh, I don't like this. Let's move money to my pet thing. And we've seen this in the past where there, there'll be an amendment saying, let's take $80 million out of this discovery program that's making the disco- uh, Venus missions and move it into, you know, construction of facilities in my district or something like that. If you had written your member of Congress and you had established that this Venus stuff is really exciting, when they're voting in that whole thing, it's like, well, I don't know if I really care whether this person moves this around in NASA because it doesn't really affect me. But then they're like, wait a second, we have these Venus supporters. And they made this really great point that it's inspiring to them and it really helps them you know, reach out to students or whatever, you know, kind of local thing. They'll say, well, maybe I'll just vote against, you know, let's keep those going. And so the, it, it, there's a lot of ways in which having supporters, even if they are not actively writing the legislation, can help protect the legislation, right? Help protect the funding by not voting against it. The the most, I think, serious example of this in, in NASA history is probably the space station, the International Space Station, right? Which is now 
probably going to be extended to 2033. It's a it's $150 billion project, ultimately. It survived by one single vote in the House of Representatives in 1993. One wow. vote. <laughs> one vote. Yeah. And so these can be really important. And we're, you know, we're talking about a Venus mission. There's usually not a lot of people against it. But there may be other people who are just see it as like an easy thing to use to fund other stuff. And so if you can establish a lot broad support, and I think this is what we've really seen shift, uh, was something that we've worked at the Planetary Society for really the last 10 years. I think we're really seeing the results of this now, is that planetary exploration is really broadly supported now. People really like it. People don't see it as a waste of money or a, a piggy bank to raid to pay for other things. They say it, it is itself valuable and good that we do this. And it has grown and grown and grown and grown. And because of those resources, NASA is able to then say, okay, the pot of money we have for this mission selection, this discovery mission, supports two missions. That's yeah. unusual that we have that pot of money to do two at the same time. Yeah. And we haven't been to Venus in 30 years. And these two missions are like perfect complements to each other. Well, hell, let's go to Venus twice, right? And yeah. That level of it, so it, it's this essence of democratic coalition building, small d democratic coalition building, where you establish validity for the idea, you work on it over and over and over again. And that is the key that advocacy never stops. And that's the hard part. When you're being successful, you don't feel the threat, but you can yeah. also build the momentum and yeah. keep it going yeah. and really invest in continue to strengthen these coalitions that say, this is really great stuff we're doing. And then we will see once that NASA has the resources, they can do amazing things with it. Yeah. And it's <laughs> the problem is though, right? There's no Venus spacecraft sitting like on a Costco shelf ready to be, you know, purchased <laughs> right. and, you know, you have to then build it. And so the payoff at space is a excellent way. It's an excellent like marshmallow test. Uh, example where you have to you're doing the work to get the funding to start the project and then you have to build the thing you have to launch the thing you have to wait for you know spaces you know there's a lot of space in space right it takes a lot of time to get to places so right. you know the venus thing that you may have called your member of congress for this year they'll get the funding that they help secure the funding for probably won't get to venus until 2029 Right. And so you just have to have patience in these things because you have to build a custom boutique spacecraft after you secure the political support. And that is kind of the, the long game in a sense that you play. But when it pays off, you start seeing a lot of things starting to happen at once. All the things we're seeing in space happening this year and the next year were probably initiated eight to 15 years ago. Right. And it's through the hard work over the last decade that we're seeing a lot of this payoff. And so the regardless of whether your member of Congress is involved deeply or not, that they support the idea, that they support the concept, and that they know their constituents care about it. Yes. Yeah. That can be a very powerful protective shield against kind of vendettas against this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's thought, the really I, important thing. Yeah, I think that the the office holders also connect to people like the, the extent they enjoy what they do is because they're helping people. So they understand mm -hmm. that you're there mm -hmm. and they, you feel good when they do. So Gabby, you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question just about, you know, 
So, I mean, obviously, space just sounds cool. You know, everyone thinks of planets and loses their mind. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to, you know, sell a, per- a congressperson on this and, you know, beyond just like, say, benefits of maybe jobs in their area or beyond space is super dope. Um, what do you say, you know, the, the benefit of this is? Because, of course, mm-hmm. you know, these are missions that are so far reaching and, and take so much time. How do you sell them on? Well, this is the data we get back and this is why it's important. Yeah, there's a couple ways you can tune your message. And this is something we talk about at our training sessions and um, on my online classes. A little bit of it depends on knowing your member of Congress and kind of what they, what their framework is of how they engage with the world, right? So sometimes they are more motivated by global competition and maintaining mm-hmm. U.S. leadership and technology. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're motivated by education and STEM investments in this country, right? And so you can actually tune your arguments to resonate with their established priorities, right? That's a good way Mm -hmm. to kind of think about how to approach it. Um, And so I think broadly to your question, you know, and and this kind of kind of can touch on both of those items that I just mentioned, uh, those two interests, but it's saying space is one of those interesting areas where it's an exploratory science, right? Where there is so much we don't know that it works as this really uh, powerful test of models and hypotheses that we've mainly developed in Earth, right? And we're pushing the bounds of those models by bringing in new data from these really extreme environments. And we're bringing in some of the smartest and most talented people and throwing them these intense challenges in engineering and scientific understanding. And that's where you get innovation and that's where you get breakthroughs in understanding of the natural world is when you're bringing in brand new information that challenges or, or promotes refinement of existing models of how nature works. And mm-hmm. out of that, you get this in very powerful uh, mix of inspiration and capability generated through that process that then is just broadly socially valuable, Right critical thinkers, highly qualified engineers. A lot of NASA has a hard time, for example, keeping their staff away from Silicon Valley firms. Like Google (laughs) hires people from JPL all the time because they're interested in really high uptime, you know, uh, services, right? So they don't want Google to ever go down. So they started hiring the people who wrote software for Mars rovers because the Mars rovers can't, you know, you can't have a blue screen of death on your Mars rover. It's the end of your mission. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's the type of, there's these practical things. And then there's also, again... That's why can, we don't give them screens. Right. right. Yeah, problem, that's problem yeah. solved, yeah. Problem solved. And then there's this bigger value. I mean, there, there's an interesting ethical, philosophical sense of, is it valuable to understand the natural world? Right? I think there's inherent value. And this may be slightly too philosophical for effective political you know, kind of quick argument. But there, I think... There is value in understanding the physical world in which we inhabit, right? And we almost have an ethical imperative to understand it as well as we can through systematic, scientifically motivated interrogations of the cosmic sphere around us. And through that pursuit, 
we will, you know, kind of find not just enrichment for ourselves, but societal enrichment and rejuvenation by, again, being challenged by brand new and unexpected data and discoveries. So that's kind of my big pit. And, and I think that's a big enough way to think about it that you can then pick and choose aspects of that that then resonate with, again, these pre-existing frameworks of interest of your member of Congress. And that's where that kind of, if you do your homework on what they react to, you can kind of tune that to really resonate with them. Yeah. Actually, it'd be interesting. I think, Gabby, so Gabby you could take your, I'm, you know, I know you're interested in extremophiles, for instance, or, you know, life, you know, and all these different things, right? Um, it, I imagine it would be pretty amazing for your field if some, if we could find life on other planets, right? Even yeah, just I a think virus. I, I think, a t well, you know, there's been a huge shunt in people working on SARS-CoV-2 just because that's hot and sexy. So I'm sure that, yeah. God forbid, we found life on another planet. Everyone would immediately lose their minds and drop everything they were working on and shunt to that <laughs> instead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how could you, suppose you were now calling, you know, you start talking to a staffer. Um, how could you, what would you say to them to understand what it means to you and your community um, of scientists, let's say, what it means to be out there looking for these things? Well, I think personally, very much like Casey, I, I really think that, you know, basic science is integral to advancement. It is something where if you go in always just saying, oh, we're doing this for, for medicine, you don't get out stuff that winds up helping you later. And truthfully, in my field, the greatest advancements have come from people looking at things that nobody cared about. Um, huh, so right. CRISPR, and you hear the whole genetic revolution, that was looking at essentially uh, resistance to phage, bacterial viruses in bacteria. No one really was looking at that as a genetic engineering revolution, but lo and behold, by understanding what this random uh, protein did, they were like, oh my God, we can use this. Um, and so there are plenty of examples like this throughout, you know, I think all fields of science really studying something that you didn't expect. Um, and space is just, you know, so much wider and broader than everything that we have here on Earth. And so going abroad lets us test going abroad. Well, you know, very, very <laughs> far abroad. abroad. Yeah. Yes, this is not this is not the traditional study abroad. Literally um, over the seas. like Yeah, uh, above them. Above the seas. I guess at one point you're under the earth. I don't know. Space has yeah, no direction. That's right. Um, that's right. But, you know, by, by going even further afield, the stuff that we find may be exponentially more interesting. Um, and who knows? I guess there's larger cosmic questions of, you know, may challenge our assumptions of where life started. Because if, you know, who knows? Maybe we find the same building blocks build everything. Everything's carbon-based or silicon-based. We don't know. We don't know what we're going to find. So yeah. it really could break our minds about the potentials for biology. I, I love how you said everybody would run to this other thing. I think if a <laughs> congressperson had an image of like all these signs, so, so, you know, we Rockefellers in New York, I'm in New York, you know, so Kirsten Gillibrand or, or uh, Chuck Schumer or their staffs, et cetera, um, had a vision of like, not just wouldn't it be amazing if one day the Mars rovers or the Venus landers and Venus atmospheric explorers found something that was a living multicellular creature or even just single who knows right just some some little thing of living thing um in some form 
it wouldn't just be like, wow, that's really weird. And, you know, everybody would be excited about all this. But like literally, like this is even just changes my image. Now I have an image of like all these scientists rushing to their lab bench, <laughs> you know, and or to their computers to get the go to the NASA website to get the information and then go to work trying to figure out how could this thing. Well, and my my little caveat for Rockefeller and I, I guess, nod to Matt, who's not here right now, was my dose of science history for y'all. Yeah. Um, so when uh, so Rockefeller actually did play a role in the, I guess, establishment of certain policies for space, including the fact that things have to be sterile. Yeah. Uh, so we're not bringing microbes to space and that we're also not bringing microbes back from space uh, because of Joshua Letterberg, who was one of the presidents of Rockefeller. Um, and he uh, essentially got fascinated by it. I think he was the one who coined the term uh, like exobiology um, <laughs> to begin with. So essentially he was one of the like founding people fascinated by the potential for life in space um, and what we might find and what we might learn of it, but also making sure that we don't inadvertently corrupt it by bringing stuff and pollutants from earth to space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the interesting thing is you can imagine, even just, you know, we always talk about spinoffs, for instance, now that's another great thing you can share. Um, you know, the process of doing that, meant that a lot of people were, are working very hard and have spent an enormous amount of time researching how can you keep something sterile? How can you, and certainly that's something we're using every day now. So, um, so Gabby has conveyed this to the staff person and it went in and, the, and then uh, one, our senator was managed to be in a, the right place at the right time and played a role in casting a vote that approved NASA's budget which included one of the things in that budget was this discovery program, right? Mm -hmm. And then that piece of money was given out and it uh, made its way through the labyrinth of uh, bureaucracy. But so suddenly somebody stood up on TV the, uh, you know, a week or so ago and said, we're going to Venus. And there's a bunch of scientists who are like, Woo! <laughs> you know, and unfortunately there are some scientists then who are like, oh. Yeah, the, the Triton scientists who had proposed uh, to go to Neptune's moon. Uh, super cool, also. Literally I know. There's, well, this again, this is where it's hard to make choices, right? Triton and, people, you didn't call. If suppose you had been, a tri <laughs> if you support Triton and you didn't call, it's your fault. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where, yeah, so once the money is authorized, then it kind of, as you said, it goes through this alphabet soup of bureaucracies to approve it because it's taxpayer money. It has to be spent carefully. But at the end of the day, it unleashes this new system that can begin to work of converting the idea into the physical manifestation of the idea. And so once the resources are there, you can start paying engineers. You can start buying the parts you need. You can start paying the scientists to really precisely define the scientific requirements. And these whole groups come together and organize, and it takes years to build these things, right? These are mm -hmm. exquisitely designed, custom-made spacecraft to answer probably five core, each one is roughly four to five core big questions it's trying to solve. Everything else it does is in service of those questions and how you make that. And then next year, they have to go through the same process, right? Congress has to then approve <laughs> that they get paid for the next year. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. at the end of the day, this is a never ending struggle. Once it begins, Congress tends to be hesitant to just completely cut it off. Right. Because it's become wasteful. Like you've spent 
it's a sunk cost fallacy, but man, that is a powerful and useful fallacy uh, <laughs> in terms of politics. But you know, you've you've spent two hundred million making a spacecraft. You really want to cancel it, right. you know, if, unless there's something seriously wrong with it, right? And NASA has a bunch of checks that, you know, and management check-ins and approvals that, you know, you, you has a very st- certain type of process about how you make a spacecraft, how you have independent boards that review it, that make sure it's mm-hmm. everything's on, on track. And then at the end of the day, you know, you say you keep doing this for the next few years, you've got yourself a finished spacecraft. You stick it on top of a rocket, right? Rocket that exists because of a completely separate political process, right? That you've had... <laughs> government investment into engine development, into procurement, into supporting rocket companies, into developing that capability because it interfaces in this case with national security needs, right? Yeah. And that there's a rocket there that has a certain capability that can launch this thing into space. And then you send it into space, say 2027 in this case. And then you have this global tracking network that again, has another completely separate process that NASA requests money that money is spent and supported, you know, in these various areas, in this case, around the world. Yeah. That's not free. That costs on the order of $240 million a year to run our deep space network tracking. And so you start seeing the, all of these things. And, you know, you look at the spacecraft that uses solar panels that were developed over decades and refined and refined that are highly reliable, highly efficient. You have computers and CPUs on board and, and semiconductors on the spacecraft that are radiation hardened that you had to be developed and used for a various deployed in space. Every piece of that spacecraft is the endpoint of some multi-decade, generally politically motivated investment that just allows you to then assemble them into existence, right? Without having to invent everything whole cloth. And it reminds you how... This is why space is often used as a symbol of technological and industrial capability, right? Because the the base that you need to feed in this highly refined, highly specialized, highly uh, difficult, you know, and tall, you know, precisely machined pieces all together to then work in one, you know, the harshest environment we can pretty much imagine. That has to be created over decades and maintained itself. And so yeah. you can you can even just branch out, you know, these bigger and bigger circles um, of why you have to invest broadly in science and technology. That And you see this kind of relationship of technology advancing that enables new types of science and new scientific questions pushing the needs of technology development. And you see why this can be broadly, again, this highly valuable investment to your society and nation at large because well, I, of its motivation and energy that it feeds in. Yeah. I, I, I have this image of, um, so Gabby, Gabby was supporting the Venus mission, let's say. Maybe even a particular um, experiment on the Venus mission, mm-hmm. right? Might've been a particular thing that's going to look for life. And, um, yeah. Um, and it's as if Gabby got to ride along. I, I have an image of like those little emojis or emojis, right? <laughs> so all the people who called, all the people who supported, let's say that particular experiment, or even just that goal, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, exo, you, you, you know, the Rockefeller, the people who said we should be looking for life. So Gabby's one of those people. So there's a bunch of emojis, a bunch of you know avatars, all riding along with that experiment, and then that experiment 
gets built and, and put inside attached, like when they attached the, heli- the helicopter, right? There could have been a lot of people that supported a helicopter. Yeah, there was. Would have been there. Yeah. The helicopter, right? So it gets attached. So Gabby gets in there and it gets attached. And now you're on board the, the rover. And there's all these other people there who supported different. There are geologists. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, engineers and, and uh, optics, optic, opticians, <laughs> optical specialists, photography specialists, et cetera. Right. Chemists. And now you all get to picked up and put inside uh, uh, on top of a rocket and the fairing comes in and gets closed. And that rocket has all these other people mm-hmm. you know, on board who, who were interested in engineering and, and um, pyrotechnics and, you know, maybe had a military background, all kinds of different things, right? And guidance, all that kind of stuff, metallurgy, on and on and on. And um, you all take off and it goes to Venus and everybody there only able to be heard the craft is only able to the, the tele, telemetry is only be, to be received by as you mentioned all these um the global space network all those giant radio dishes around the world and every one of them has all kinds of people that support that who are interested in radio astronomy or radio communication anything right um or just jobs for their you know some of these dishes are in remote places right they yeah. just yeah. they worked hard to get that dish built there Mm-hmm. Their congressperson thought, I'm going to bring some high technology to this very rural area. Right? Okay. Anyway, they're all there. So all those dishes have people all around them. And then uh, on and on and on and on, back to the actual people. So it's interesting to imagine all the people attached to the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Literally That's a nice, that way to, supporting. nice way to think about that. It reminds me of the story. It might be apocryphal, but it's a great story. It, back in like 1963, John F. Kennedy was visiting... Uh, one of the uh, NASA centers, maybe Marshall, uh, right after the moon program was announced. And he sees a janitor off, you know, he's doing the big tour. He sees a janitor who's, you know, kind of sweeping off to the side. And he walks up, introduce himself to janitor because he's a great politician. And he asks himself what he did at, at NASA. And the janitor said, I'm helping to get people to the moon. Uh. Right. And that was like this en- essence of he wasn't just, he, I'm not here to sweep floors. I'm not here to clean. I'm helping, you know, everyone has a part and you need yes. people and it engages all sorts of people, right? This is why people fight so hard for this NASA money. Ultimately, because it pays really, you know, it's good middle-class jobs and frequently in places that don't have a lot of options for them. And, but that shared sense of purpose, and this is why it helps to have these big visions for exploration you know, I'm helping to find life in Europa. I'm helping mm. to explore Venus for the first time. I'm helping to seek out, you know, the oceans of Mars, the the, the yeah. past oceans of Mars. That's a way it kind of emphasizes this shared effort. And it's also, again, I think why it can apply so broadly and so many people find passion and joy in space exploration is that there's so many ways to engage with it. You know, even again, and this is, I think, my core, you know, conceit, or my core idea here to propose is that even if you have no technical background, scientific background, or don't work as a janitor at NASA, right? Like anything, you don't have to do that. You can be a citizen who cares about it and just enjoys it or thinks it's important and still have a role to play through the political process. And that I think is this great unifying aspect of space exploration. Yeah. Yeah. And as the, as the lander, plummets through the atmosphere of Venus. And finally, the parachute opens up and it lands 
and uh, begins looking around the surface of Venus and sending messages back. That phone call that Gabby made is part of what got it. That was a fuse in a way. I wouldn't even say lit the fuse. That was the fuse that lit this whole rocket that got that thing all the mm -hmm. way there. And then it comes back. And if you have had the, you know, the privilege of you took a moment to begin to participate in these programs, when you see, like, I, I feel, you know, now I can see pictures come back, let's say, on the website and feel like, wow, I, just like you said about that, that yeah. person, I played some role in that. Yeah. Um, and, and it is, and I think it's what's hard to imagine is how important it is. Like, I imagine all the, so Gabby and all the other people who supported this a particular experiment that gets loaded onto the rover, onto the, uh, the, the satellite, um, if they had all been carried along by this experiment and then they arrived at the place to be assembled and nobody else was there, <laughs> right? <laughs> that'd be it. Like you needed all those other people who had all these other interests um, to play it's their the, role. It's the yeah. essence of a democracy in a sense where mm. it oftentimes can feel like one individual person yeah. can seem really unimportant to, a, you know, in a big movement in a country of 350 million people. Yeah. But if everyone took the individual decision to not do anything, nothing would happen, right? And it's this, our brains struggle, I think, with that because it's unintuitive. We just break yeah. down with large numbers. And it's just like this with space. Like if maybe you won't be the deciding factor, but if enough people decide not to do it, then we could easily lose this kind of momentum that we have. And so oh, yeah. you should... yeah. Everyone does. And uh, uh, what I always find so rewarding personally to me is, Philip, to, to hear people, your experiences coming back of participating in that day of action, in reaching out to members of Congress. And I would say it's fair to say you and your you know, other people who come and do that, you're all fired up after the fact, right? You're, you're feeling like you have, and I think really contributed to something. And that's not a false experience right and it's very exciting and, and rewarding to do and that i think this is why we really invest a lot of effort to put that event together and to make it try to make it as accessible as we can for people to come and participate in that yeah and i would say by the, the, the talk about you know again like spinoffs having done that having played that role i kind of saw how well yes me as a citizen can make some difference um I've applied that now. There are other issues I'm now much more yeah. comfortable calling and, and also saying, I'm also support this issue and that I want you to make sure, you know, so it, it spreads out throughout the democracy. It's a good so, citizen practice. Citizen right? practice. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. It should be part of the, uh, the, the tutorial of becoming an American. Um, there you go. The last image I'll leave us all with, I, I think is, uh, I could just say that from an alien standpoint, from, you know, looking out, and if you saw the Earth, and then you see a little light, little rocket coming up, and it goes and it sails through the solar system, and then there's another little light, and a little golden uh, craft comes out, and there's parachutes, and it lands on another planet, or into the skies of another planet, you actually would, what you're seeing is not just that, those, those pieces. You're seeing something that life did. You know, like life was born on Earth mm -hmm. and organized itself mm -hmm. and did that, you know, and that's really what you're a part of. I, I just find that mind blowing, you know. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful I, I've always I'm always 
struck by that. And that's when you see the launch of a spacecraft that is carrying like a mission to Mars or mission to Venus, you are struck by the fact that this is an expression of peaceful scientific curiosity shared by literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who worked to make that happen. Yeah. And we didn't have to do it. We could stop at any moment, but we choose not to. And so it's that continual affirmation of exploration and scientific curiosity that to me is one of the most hopeful and beautiful aspects of exploring space like this. And it's, it's easy to, it's, it's a good counter nihilistic, you're right. A good counter to any sort of like nihilism or <laughs> misanthropy. <laughs> yeah. I like, that. Right? I like that. And which we could, always use right that yeah. this is i always feel like this is a better angel of our nature made manifest is space exploration i love that the planetary society countering nihilism <laughs> yes it's <laughs> yeah. our new unofficial <laughs> yeah everywhere we go yeah. um uh fun wonderful thank and thank you gabby thank you for supporting that mission to venus i yeah you know i called so i did all the work uh, it was fantastic <laughs> couldn't have done it without yeah. you couldn't, yeah it's true well that's the other thing you couldn't yeah, have done it all, everything that gets done in that and all these giant endeavors couldn't have done it without you. Um, uh, yeah. So Casey, how, how can people find out more about this planetary society thing that we keep talking about and how can they find out more about your uh, joint get learning from you? Cause I think you're just a great place to start is just watch some of these little videos. Yeah. Well, planetary.org. That's our uh, website where I'll just emphasize we're, we're, we're a nonprofit organization. We're independent, right? So, you know, I'm advocating for Venus missions and missions to Europa. We don't get any kind of benefit, you know, financially <laughs> from doing that, right? We're not an industry representative right. group. You know, we don't take money from big aerospace company. We don't take government money. We just really want to see these beautiful pictures and exciting new discoveries. And we were founded as that independent group and we remain independent because regular people, anybody in the world, can join as a member or, or, or provide a donation and enable us to continue doing our job. And that's very rare, frankly, in the world of, of space. Um, most of the people working in DC are representing large corporate interests uh, or, or professional interests. We're one of the very few groups and absolutely the largest and most influential group that represents your interests as people uh, for space science. And so that's, I always want to emphasize that, that the Planetary Society is, does, is doing this because we love it. We're, we're, just, we're just like you if you love this stuff. We, we're ultimate fans. And so planetary.org, uh, you can find out ways if you want to join the society. It starts at four bucks a month. Uh, you get a nice magazine. Or you can get a lot of stuff we just give out for free uh, with no ads, which is great. So um, you can find me on Twitter easily, just at Casey Dreyer. Uh, planetary.org slash space policy if you want to find all of our policy stuff and courses.planetary.org if you want to find my online course about space advocacy 101. Lots of good resources there. And of course, as you already mentioned, the podcast, right? Everyone's got a podcast yeah. these days. I got to plug oh, my yeah. uh, Planetary Radio Space Policy Edition on all the major networks or just part of Planetary Radio once a month, which is a great show by my co-host. Oh, yes, absolutely. And please tell him I said hello. I, I hope will. to meet him someday. Yeah. Um, He's inspiring. So, Gabby, thank you. Do you have any? Uh, um, you have a message? A message you want to uh, just blurt out from? You just landed on Venus. What would you like to just say? It's hot here. 
Yeah. <laughs> Why did I do this? Science. <laughs> this is Perfect. a really bad idea. <laughs> that is a scientific I don't think my space is going to last too long. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's raining acid. Come on. Why did I do that? That's wonderful. Um, anything you'd like to plug? Nope. I am plugless. Plugless. Get your vaccine if you haven't. Yes. Get vaccinated. That's my, that's my only plug. My plug in perpetuity. Get vaccinated. Yeah. Always a good policy. Um, Thank you, uh, Casey. It's so great to have you here. And uh, Gabby, as always. And uh, I'll give my regards also to all our listeners from Matt. He'll be back next week. Um, and until then, Casey, do you? I don't know if you remember, we have a ritual here when we end. Gabby, could you explain what it is? Like, there are phone calls coming in to our office from all the possibil- possibilities of, of shows we could of topics we could explore. But Gabby, what, what is this thing? What, what, why do we do And what are we going to yeah. do? Yeah, I mean, as the phone calls are coming in and we're staring up at the infinite cosmos and the potential out there, uh, we are assailed by all of the possible ifs that might remain out there on distant worlds. Uh, and so we cannot help but scream the name of the show in awe and terror of what lies before us. Uh, so, Casey, will you join us in, in shouting in horror and excitement? And the opposite of nihilism. Let us, yes, shout to counter nihilism <laughs> together. What? The the <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>